Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Culture. Hello everyone and welcome to a new winter cults and culture and today we are going to be talking about Joy Division's album Unknown Pleasures and here to discuss that with me is Dreadful Dan. Hello. We're going to be going into the deep and dark world of Joy Division and this album came out in 1979 therefore making it a full 40 years uh, since its release and we did Horrors which was 10 years ago and we did Bleach which was uh, 20 years ago and that's right wasn't it no it's 30 years ago wasn't it Bleach yeah yeah we will try and do one before the end of the year I guess on something that was released in 1999 and we've had some um, had some thoughts about what that might be, but yeah. So today, talk about Joy Division, Unknown Pleasures. Dan, I know you said you haven't really, you haven't really heard much of this album before, so this is kind of the first time that you've really taken a, a deep dive uh, into it. What were your thoughts coming into it, and how are you kind of feeling now that you've listened to it quite a bit? Yeah, that's true. I think uh, maybe I'd listened to this once or maybe twice at most. The uh, the pleasures were relatively unknown to me of this album <laughs> i um um yeah when you said oh let's do it i i put it on my phone which is obviously not the ideal way to enjoy an album um however for convenience sake i had to um and i put it on i was walking to the train station and i have to walk through quite a large park um with no lights so it was like really dark and i put this on and it was so eerie and atmospheric yeah, I bet. Um, so actually, yeah, if, if you want to come at this album from a fresh angle, go and hang out in the park after uh, after sundown. I thought you were going to say, <laughs> come visit me. Yeah, well, by all means, come and enjoy. Let's have a spin together. <laughs> um, yeah, and to, to how, how do you feel about it, um, you know, now that you've listened to it a bit? Is it something, is it surprising? Is not it? Su- no, not surprising. It's, it's, it's what I... Th- expected it to be um although i will say yeah i think probably i just listened to it and didn't really engage with it i think i absorbed a lot more this time around especially 
um, in terms of some of the arrangements. Um, I thought I picked up on some of the, like, what, what's different about other um, kind of like post-punk bands that I would have probably associated this with. So I think I've got a slightly renewed uh, respect and appreciation for it. But I yeah. hope to learn more from our discussion this evening. So, yeah, with me, I when I first listened to this album back when I was younger, there were a few tracks that kind of stood out more and that I would um, play on repeat. And I kind of skipped over some of the more slower, uh, darker tracks. And coming back to it, um, I kind of respect those tracks a lot more now. And it might be because I've listened to the other tracks so much that now these slower ones are kind of, you know, rising above um, everything else. But, yeah, I don't know if it's because I've got more mature or something like that. Um but it's definitely got a different um, sound to it, which we'll go into like production wise. But if you listen to it, like the same experience you had walking through the park, if it's really late at night, if you're in like a depressed mood and you stick this yeah. on and you can just wallow around in that for ages, but it's definitely something that it just feels dark the way it's all like there's so much reverb. Um, it feels like you're in like a echo chamber of some sort and yeah, if you've got the lights out and you're kind of listening to that, it's, yeah, just takes you on a, a, a journey, a sonic journey um, through your own depressed, dark mind and through <laughs> that of uh, Ian Curtis and the rest of the band, obviously, as well. Um, but it did, it was, I just remember it sounded so weird, so dark and weirdly, like, when you think of, like Disorder is like an opening track, for example, not to go straight into it, but um, everything about that, I was just like, this. every element of this sounds amazing separately and put together. And it just, yeah, it just puts you in a weird place and it's cool. It's just completely unique. Um, and that's something that I think why Joy Division has had such an impact and stayed around for so long is that because it's just a sound that no one's really quite been able to put their finger on since. And people have come close, you know, you've got, you know, uh, Interpol, we were talking about the other day, yeah. bands like Editors who are a bit more poppy, they try and do that kind of, you know, darker, darker sound. And it's not just the singing side, um, it's everything else. But yeah, no one's really been able to pull it off quite like Joy Division were able to. It was that original, unique sound and that's why I really like it and I think this album still stands up to this day because it kind of steps out of um its time and becomes like a legendary timeless sound album slash you know series of songs that um no one's really really been able to replicate properly since that's how I feel about it anyway I'd be interested to know um when you first actually heard this album I do remember you liking them when we were fairly young probably still in our teens yeah and the the music you were making at that time was was probably starting to be influenced by it so yeah as we go i'd be interested to know as well like which were those songs that you were listening to the most and were maybe influencing you yeah it's weird because it was one of those things where um it's a bit chicken and egg because i just found myself gravitating towards the like darker stuff anyway and it was when I was in uh, The Changelings, if you remember, with um, <laughs> Tarek uh, Gunu. And um, he, not he, his older brother, Fiza, as well, um, listened to a lot of that stuff. And they were in a band called Valinsky. And I remember um, 
they, uh, yeah, um, this guy Simon, who was my other friend's older brother, was in this band as well, and he was besotted with Joy Division. So just through, like, osmosis, really, like, I was kind of starting to listen to them. But I was kind of finding that, um, yeah, I was kind of heading down that direction anyway And some of the songs that, um, you know, this is obviously quite early on in my songwriting personally, was starting to kind of emulate that a little bit without me even really knowing it. And um, specifically Warsaw, uh, they were called Warsaw as as a band name, but they had a song called Warsaw, which starts with like... 350125 oh, go or whatever. Oh yeah. Um we covered that and I was I remember thinking that Joy Division even though they were super dark I f- thought they were more punky if that makes sense. Yeah. than um anything else cuz you hear like the Love Will Tear Us Apart or She's Lost Control, Transmission, Isolation and all this stuff which are a bit more upbeat and almost dancey and that kind of fits into their like live aesthetic as well that was kind of going on at the time of um you know when they were around and you know Ian was alive when they were Joy Vision and uh rather than something like this album which isn't just that it's actually mostly quite dark and atmospheric and we'll kind of come on to that a bit later but yeah that was kind of how I got into it as as such um and yeah I think it did have quite an impact on uh, yeah my songwriting and stuff as it went on, and especially when going to uni and Interpol came along, um, because for me that's, that was like a huge amount of time when really it was, you know, suddenly like what six years or something yeah. from like probably hearing that to when Interpol um, came along. It was probably less than that actually. So um, I can hear the link though. I can hear that direct sort of development from this kind of sound to then liking yeah Interpol and. Uh, and, even, and even the horrors, you know, that we spoke about recently. Yeah, yeah it's very um, much there. I think, from my perspective, then you know, probably hearing this, uh, probably a bit, a bit later, probably when I was in my mid twenties for the first time, and then only really engaging with it properly now. It's almost like um, not to do it down. Um, almost like Jack Kerouac novel. I think you, you come at it at a certain age, um, and then you get too old. Yeah. to a degree um so obviously it hasn't resonated with me maybe in the way that you know you have to think if someone heard this in 1979 um it would have been pretty pretty massive i think yeah pretty big deal um but coming at it older and, and having absorbed a lot of post-punk and uh dark gothic and desolate music uh some of that impact was lost but i am quite interested in talking about um some of these production quirks that i think do make it stand out from Mm. the rest of the pack um and like you said that's probably why it's uh, achieved its sort of iconic status and enjoyed the longevity that it has yeah yeah, well, let's let's go into like the kind of context and the stuff surrounding um, the album and kind of leading up to it a little bit, maybe. Cool. Um, so yeah, so uh, Unknown Pleasures released June the fifteenth, nineteen seventy nine, on the infamous Factory Records, um, and it was Joy Division's uh, debut studio album, and it was actually the only studio album released during Ian Curtis's lifetime, which is weird when you think about it. Um, yeah, and. It was recorded at a place called uh, Strawberry Studios in Stockport, 
over three weekends, literally six days, they did everything. So very short time frame um, to kind of get this done. And yeah, uh, in terms of the band themselves, uh, they come from Salford, in case you don't know, they were formed in 1976. And the, the myth is, is that um, Bernard Sum- Sumner, Bernie Sumner and Peter Hook had separately attended a Sex Pistols show at the Manchester Lesser Free Trade Hall in mm. June 76. And they obviously kind of got inspired by it. The fact that it was, you know, um, a big, making lots of noise and a big fuck you to the crowd. And, you know, they dug that. And they wanted to basically set up a band. Um, the joke is that everyone went to that show. Um, yeah, and there's only I mean, like five I mean, people or something. Yeah, but it's true. Like every band that came out of... Uh, you know that 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 region um, in the late seventies went to that show and was inspired yeah. by that that one show. <laughs> it's amazing. It's crazy, yeah. It's crazy thinking like, yeah, how much of an impact like Sex Pistols had obviously on the world. Of t- but yeah, so what made me laugh is that in interviews since then, um, Bernie Sumner said that, uh, <laughs> yeah, when people say, "Oh, Joy Division started that gig," he was like, "No." It's not, not quite accurate. <laughs> Apparently, he'd already decided he wanted to uh, be in a band. He'd already bought a guitar. And um, like typical lads, they basically wanted to get the girls. They thought it was an easy way to pick up with Amazing. <laughs> and it, Amazing. And, and was, then they produced this album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it was pre-Sex Pistols. And um, yeah, so, and then what happened is they put up I find this quite funny. He put up his mum's number in Virgin Records in, um, or whatever the shop was in uh, Manchester. Yeah. And he basically got a load of like prank callers and all this stuff. So Ian was one of the callers and he got the, um, got the role as it were, uh, got the gig um, without even an audition. And even and Ian and Bernie knew each other anyway. And <laughs> yeah, apparently, um, but he said it was mainly mainly hired Ian because he wanted to get his mum off his back because <laughs> she kept moaning about all these prank calls <laughs> that she was getting. Um, yeah, which is quite funny. Uh, so, yeah, and these guys definitely had, like, you know, a look. Um, their first EP, uh, um, which was called An Ideal for Living, I believe that had, like, a, a member of the Hitler Youth or whatever, on the cover mm. and Bernie Sumner definitely had that kind of look about him. And they were all like, you know, shirts and a bunch of like ugly lads. They would probably describe themselves as. So they had uh, Stephen Morris on drums who joined um, after uh, having a few switches in terms of he was on the drums. Uh, Bernie Sumner was on guitar, Pete Hook on bass and Ian Kurtz obviously singing. And they were initially called Warsaw and apparently to avoid confusion with a band called Warsaw Pact. They renamed themselves Joy Division in late 77. Joy Division being um, the, well, yeah, to go into it, the World War II um, division that was basically uh, Jewish women um, sold for sex to the Nazis, basically. Uh, And that was what was called Joy Division. So they went with that name, (laughs) Why not? Um, yeah, so they, as I said, they put on some songs for um, An Ideal for Living and 
yeah, they did a couple um, of songs for a release called uh, A Factory Sample in December 78, and that was Glass and Digital. Mm-hmm. And this was with Martin Hannett. And he was, what people say, really brought that album to life. Uh, Which album? Because, uh, Unknown Pleasures, sorry. Oh. Because um, he was insane by the, <laughs> by the oh. sounds of it. <laughs> Apparently he looks like Tom Baker on drugs and not the Tom Baker we went to school with, the Doctor Who. Because <laughs> that Tom Baker probably was on drugs, but the um, Doctor Who actor. And um, yeah, so they, uh, it's an incredible amount of stories kind of surrounding the actual production of this album. Um, Before we get to that, can I just inquire, what's the nature of that EP or the material that led up to the album what do you mean so i mean this just uh, album comes out of nowhere but that ep i mean did they have this songwriting and sound already yeah it was a bit more rockier so they were um an ideal for living they basically did themselves so they paid for it themselves they just put a made a up a record label name um which i can't remember what it's called now but um yeah and that's what warsaw is on as well and yeah it's it's not quite got the um the sound is there the songwriting is definitely there but it's not quite got that deep dark sound that didn't happen until they did the couple of songs for the factory sample which was with martin hannett okay so do you think he then pushed them in the studio to sort of like develop like slower songwriting or it wasn't the songs. He was, he, so this is the kind of thing with the whole album is that they wanted it to be a punk rock album. Okay. And he turned it into this dark, depressing thing, which at first, you know, Peter Hook and all that are very vocal about the fact they fucking hated it when they first heard it. Wow. And they did for ages and they thought it was shit, basically. They thought the songs were good. They liked the songs because obviously it's their songs, but they hated, absolutely hated that sound. Wow. But now in retrospect, they're like, we were wrong. (laughs) Basically (sighs) like that was, we didn't realize at the time, but, um, you know, it obviously was part of who Joy Division became, who they were, what their, you know, legend status, legendary status was, was that sound. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's weird to think that they didn't like it at first. Um, yeah, they were just gutted because they thought they were a big punk rock band. And <laughs> then, you know, there's all this like really loads of digital delays. Martin Hannett was like, a, he just bought like four or something um, digital delays. Um, he was obsessed with them and he kept using them on this and whatever. And they just wasn't, weren't ready for it at all. Um, and that yeah. was kind of one of the things that gets discussed is that they came in not really knowing what they're doing if that makes sense they're just a young band early 20s or whatever and so you know Martin Hannett is just making them do what he wants them to do and they're just kind of going along with it because they don't know any better um and if you've got that mindset we're a punk band we're making a punk album um and some of that sort of sapping some of that like energy from the songs yeah, um, but I mean that's what pushes it into the realms of the post-punk and the, away from just being a standard punk album, I suppose. 
Well, yeah, exactly. And this is the thing. So he used very strange techniques. Like I think they said at one point, just to get the lift up to the studio, he was like, oh, we should record that. <laughs> they recorded this uh-huh. lift moving. Um, other things like uh, they use a sound of a bottle smashing, someone eating crisps. <laughs> like a lot of, no way. Yeah, a lot of backwards guitars and stuff. And <laughs> yeah, the sound of a basement toilet. So he was picking up all these weird sounds. He apparently walked past and there was like a... Um, like a suitcase or whatever for, I don't know, one of the amps or whatever. And um, he was banging against it and going, yeah, yeah, I like this. This is our bass drum sound. <laughs> things like that. And he'd just mic it up and they'd record it. Um, and yeah, like other weird things, like he'd keep the uh, air conditioning on really high so it's freezing in there the whole time. Like they were saying, like, you could see your breath sometimes. It was that cold. Wow. Um, and yeah, this guy was just a bit of a a bit of a nutter. <laughs> But some of that translated, didn't it? Because, I mean, that is the atmosphere of the record. Yeah, exactly. So, and that's, yeah, as you said, that's what gives it its unique, unique sound. So they were more about, you know, they wanted to get across this like aggressive live thing that they were doing. Um, and yeah, they this album didn't really reflect that. Right. Get at some all. girls. Exactly. Yeah. Why not? Um <laughs> And I think one of the main things is that uh, the guitar sound, I think, seemed to be getting on everyone's uh, tits a bit because, it, you know, obviously, like, producing a rock album or whatever, the guitars are usually very big and loud and in your face. But with this, it's, again, drenched in reverb and echo delays and all this stuff and bounced around probably a few times um, and and very small for the most part. That was yeah. the first thing that struck me actually about about this um, was just how small and sort of wiry the guitars sounded, mm. um, and kind of just like lost, lost in this like abyss of sort of desolation. It's a big, empty, hollow, cold, sad sound. Yeah, with this little thing plinking and poking away in the middle. Yeah, and there are parts where you know, they kind of crank it up a little bit. But for the most part, yeah, it's very uh, minimal in that sense and less is more um, direction. And, yeah, apparently um, Ian would record his vocals in the dark, which is quite interesting, you know, yeah. when you when you think about it. And apparently it was only really during the recording that the band actually really got to listen to the lyrics properly Um and apparently I thought it was quite strange as contrary to the legend that is in case, apparently he was quite a lighthearted person. And when he, you know, when they were hearing these words, they were, apparently they were a bit like, oh, it's weird. It's not, you know, it's not like Ian. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, they said that, um, I think they used the word intrusive because it sounded like really, really personal, all this dark, dark stuff. But they never saw it day day to day in you know spending time with Ian. Um, it's just quite interesting when you think think about it. And that's probably then his motivation for being in the band, I, I guess. If uh, he he needed an outlet for that and wasn't the kind of person to show it, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think there's an element to it, and as well, you know, talking about it being like an inspiration, it's. It's dark and horrible, but also at the same time, it's kind of jubilant in some places. 
It's music you can still dance to. Um, and yeah, that's what I kind of think sometimes, you know, especially when I went into the Pistol Gang later on and all this, is that it's kind of like trying to make rock music that's, yeah, that's something you could kind of dance to but still be, you know, not too poppy. And I think something like Joy Division with some of those tracks, especially when you see some of the live footage and all this, um, they kind of do that quite nicely. Um, I don't know. Do you think it's kind of music you can dance to? <laughs> Absolutely. I <laughs> I was preempting. Um, we might talk about maybe some of the influence this has had, and I was thinking to a degree, um, it's had a negative influence in a way in creating a whole scene of that kind of music um, that doesn't ever quite measure up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it has got that, you know, as, as sort of stark and dark as this album is, it has got all those danceable rhythms in there. But I think, um, you know, and then that sort of led on to an influence of the whole Hacienda and Manchester scene. and uh, But a raft of bands that, that want to make that kind of upbeat, danceable, kind of indie um, guitar rock. Um, but they want to then include these kind of more dark and uh, confessional lyrics but they're contrived they're not sincere and obviously yeah. everything that Ian Curtis is writing came from a very real place so I am ready to kind of go into the album if you want to do this I'm ready I'm I'm strapped in let's do it let's do it so this is track one disorder <laughs> Disorder for me is probably one of the best debut songs on a debut album ever. I don't wow. know what you feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'll confess, for some reason, my version that I listened to has all of the side B songs first and then the side A songs. Hmm. So I don't know if that reflects a maybe at some point because I've seen this happen before, where albums um, then were you know issued on CD, sometimes they'd accidentally get the A and the B sides the wrong way around. That's so uh, weird. Or if I've just got a really crap download. <laughs> um, but for me, Disorder was the, uh, so well, the start of what would have been the second side. Oh, really? So like, like the sixth song or something. Oh no, it's the A, a side. S- yeah, so, I've, so it's quite interesting. I've had quite a different listening experience. I think I've started with like probably like the, the darker, heavier stuff. Yeah. Um, so when I had Disorder, I was like, oh, this is quite nice. Like shot in the arm. <laughs> um, something a bit more upbeat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought this was probably the, the most commercial or probably like less challenging song on the album. Yeah. Um, 
So in that respect, as an opener, um, probably, yeah, a good way to draw in new listeners that might not be ready for something quite so hard going. Um, yeah, pretty upbeat and, and kind of like chiming, I think. A chiming mm-hmm. sound that I think then I didn't hear too much more of. Um, and I thought this, to me, was the strongest kind of foreshadowing of what uh, New Order would, would be and... Um, yeah, sort of predicting that Manchester sound. Um, this is probably, you know, like the most danceable song on the mm-hmm. album. Um, and in that respect, there were other songs that I preferred, <laughs> let's just say. That's interesting. So just on what you were saying earlier about the A side and B side, obviously we have to, people have to keep in mind any of the younger listeners, um, CD wasn't around. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's why the even though you listen to it in the wrong, not the wrong order, but um, the first half and second half being switched around. The new they order. Still, yeah, oh God. They, st- <laughs> <laughs> they still, um, they still work in that, you know, and that's why when you, when you do listen to it, um, what, what it was is that new dawn fades would have been the end of the um, first half. And then it, she's lost control would have been the beginning of the second half. Mm. So all those that split in the middle does work, um, and it's quite a, a cool way to split the album. So it wasn't like a CD where it just kind of runs one into the other. So it's it's interesting to listen to it that way round um, yeah, because they work in their own sides. I'm trying to say basically, even though it's not necessarily the correct way round. Interestingly, initial pressings of the album didn't label the sides A and B. Um, it was outside and inside. That's cool, isn't it? So you had a choice, I suppose, which side you wanted to play first. Are you an innie or an outie? <laughs> it turns out I was an innie. Yeah, so for me, Disorder, it's it's just it really introduces you to that like cool... Joy Division sound, basically. I really like the um, spray can drums. <laughs> wow. You kind of see, yeah. Um, and it's got this real, like, perky bass and that clean, slightly clean, yet slightly distorted guitar sound. And, yeah, just when Ian starts singing, it's just like all these things coming together, you're just like, this is great. <laughs> Love this. Um the melody, the lyrics, the cool bass lines. And, you know, we shouldn't, as, again, it's just every little bit works. Like the drumming throughout this album is great. It's brilliant. Yeah. And, you know, there's a thing with the producer, Martin Hannah, um, that was, I can't remember his name now, where he thought a lot of drummers were sloppy, basically. So he'd always really want to use a drum machine. But, um, yeah, not the case for Joy Division um, because, yeah, the guy... Um, Stephen Morris is a incredible drummer, still is. And yeah, great at keeping time. And um, so all that stuff is really cool. And it's kind of got this urgency when, even when there's like a real dark, horrible sound going on, it still like feels like really energetic, which really adds to it. And Peter Hook's bass, it's just weird. Like the stuff that he's playing and doing, especially on this song as well, because, you know, towards the end, he's just playing out of tune. <laughs> you know, he's hitting like bum notes and all this mm-hmm. stuff, but it's kind of adding to the whole thing. And yeah, again, with the guitar, 
it's again kind of creating these it's more about creating a weird sound rather than playing the you know the right notes or something like that um, yeah that's the influence i think that's the post-punk influence kind of coming through trying to introduce elements of like discord yeah even in this song which is like i said probably like probably one of the strongest in terms of being melodic mm. you've still got some of those quirks edges and kind of angles Exactly, yeah. It's like they're all playing their own song um, <laughs> and it just seems to fit fit together. So, uh, yeah, it's quirky, slightly unsettling and it's just really interesting. It just feels like it's really risky doing something like that, but they clearly are just, you know, doing like this out of tuneness bit towards the end, but they're clearly enjoying it and embracing the fact that it's, you know, not the right thing to do. Um yeah, and again, like this is kind of telling for the rest of the album. The guitar work is quite simple. Not there's not really any big chords. It's lots of single notes, and um, yeah, they're all kind of playing their own riffs. They're rarely following each other um, in terms of the guitar and bass. And you also notice that they play around with a lot of synths. And you know, for instance, in this song, you kind of have that wishy-washy UFO sound, light noise going on in the background. Um, almost as if it's the sound of air or like or like the world around you, the ambience around you, like warping, um, which is pretty cool in itself. It just feels like you're kind of like on the precipice of disaster and greatness. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, you know, you could go either way at any moment. And that's kind of the best place to be, right? That's the most interesting, you know, line to walk. Um, it's in that it's the most exciting in rock and roll. Yeah, like literally it sounds like it could fall apart any second. Yeah, from um, that knife edge of danger. Yeah. And Do you think they recorded together as a band, these sessions, or was there a lot of overdubbing? Oh, I don't know. Because I'm know. imagining, like, what you said earlier, like, they might have imagined this as as their kind of, like, Buzzcocks-esque, upbeat, punk-rocking single. Yeah. Only to discover when they heard it. Um, like their disparate parts have been slapped together in a way that doesn't quite mesh. Yeah, um, maybe. I'm just imagining they maybe wrote this thinking it was going to be a, a bit more conventional than it turned out being. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't, don't think of it like that. I think I want to say that the first gig they ever did was supporting Buzzcocks. It's a pretty well, good Buzzcocks, one to do. Yeah, yeah. I think Buzzcocks played at that Sex Pistols show. No, uh, that would make sense. I'm not mistaken, which I might yeah. do, but... Um, so, yeah, with the song... Um, sorry, going back to it. It's, uh, it's quite fast compared to the rest of the tracks, as you were saying. Um, and, yeah, it's it's weird. It's like towards the end, with the drums kind of, you know, kind of pushing the song, making it go... It feels like he's playing almost double, triple time, and it just adds this whole, like, excitement and build-up... Um, towards the end it's really really cool and lyrically it's quite interesting they're all the songs quite interesting but for ages i thought and i might be mistaken still but for uh, i might be right but i thought it was uh, i want a guy to come and take me by the hand and then later on could these sensations make me feel the pleasures of another man and i was thinking i remember (laughs) thinking it's a really bold statement just to go down that like you know, homoerotic, like I'm not manly enough kind of thing. 
Yeah. But apparently it's, <laughs> I've won a guide and it will uh-huh. need a gu- guide to come and take me by the hand. Could these sensations make me feel the pleasures of a normal man? Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Less gay. Uh, <laughs> I was reading much, into it. So. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it sounds as if like he's, he's letting himself be um, happy for a moment. It's weirdly empty yet joyful. He just wants to feel the normal pleasures of everyday life like everyone else. Mm. But he's a, a passionate artist and at the same time, he hates it because he can't be normal. It's uh, it's like he almost has some kind of disorder. Um, again, he kind of talks about flashing lights, which is perhaps a reference to his epilepsy. If people don't know, he was epileptic and he would have fits. And, um, and even though obviously uh, epilepsy is dangerous and exhausting, it's some, it can give you a state of uh, euphoria, which... I don't know, weirdly, I was thinking, eh, maybe this kind of works into the song a little bit. Um, mm. It sounds as if there's, there's times where he's getting frustrated at modern life and perhaps social etiquette. Um, you know, when he said, like, who gives a damn somehow? And then the kind of circle comes about again. He's found a new inspiration, a new sensation, and yet he's numb again. But it's kind of sung in jubilance at the end. Um and it becomes almost like manic and excitable in its own way. It's almost like he's having a bit of an epileptic fit towards the end of the actual song. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what I was reading into it. So that was Disorder. And it's one of my favourite tracks off the album, but you're saying it's not one of yours? By no means. Oh, that's good. This is going to get juicy, isn't it? Can't wait. <laughs> um so the next song is Day of the Lords, not Day at the Lords, <laughs> which I would imagine would be a nice nice day of cricket involved, but um, <laughs> Day of the Lords. Dan, what did you think about this one? Wait, I... Day of the Lords, let's listen to it. Dan, that was Day of the Lords. Did that, are you lording it up? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did like this one. Um, I really liked that bass. Mm -hmm. Um, Possibly, I mean, you know, this is full of really great bass lines, but this was one that was kind of a bit grimy and seedy and slow and dirty. Not which are all, all adjectives that I like to employ in describing music that I like. Mm. Um, and I thought that refrain, that lyrical refrain, Where Will It End, was very resonant. That's a really good hooky kind of memorable line. Yeah. And it all just built really nicely to 
Again, quite a, quite a, like melodic and fairly poppy sort of almost almost anthem. Yeah. Um, but I'd say yeah, stepping away from some of that more upbeat sound of disorder. Um, so it's like we're walking a little bit further into the uh, the recesses of the abyss of Joy Division's sound. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, this was very much what I thought would be uh, a song that you would appreciate. Um, <laughs> yeah, the intro reminds me of the horrors, or should I say, it, it horrors reminds me of this intro. Um, mm. Yeah, but it's slow, it's dirty, it's dark. Ian's voice takes on a much more like deeper baritone. Um, and yes. I mean, that's he, something we haven't mentioned yet. But what's that? Well, as part of their overall sound, and, you know, even on Disorder, that first time you hear his singing voice, I mean, you, probably people listening to this, we're so used to his his voice. But imagine hearing that for the first time. It's so unconventional yeah and he's just singing in his voice with a very strong accent um and which is very uncompromising i think he is saying this this is me i'm not having to put on any kind of uh pretense he's not even singing you know he's not singing like a like a punk no. uh singer he's just doing his thing um and that's quite jarring because it's not an appealing voice no it's actually um, not. It's not great singing, obviously, at all in any way, and especially like when he's doing it live and whatever. There's a lot of like, gets quite screamy and shouty, and obviously he's doing his cool dancing as well. <laughs> yeah. Anyone that's not seen that, but um, it's very flat, like yeah. you said, baritone, um, detached, cold, and that is all part of yeah, stamping his sort of personality uh, and sound all over this music. Yeah. Um, and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, yeah, uh, you know, as you said, where will it end? It's a cool little hook. It feels, feels like an anthem, like you said. It's bigger. It's just a bigger song in principle, but it's, it's cool. It has this kind of, you know, again, I always describe this as like waves, but like has this constant build and release. Um, and it feels like it should be like, like a bit more like a stadium filling song or something mm. almost um but at the same time it's still it's it's a bit of a dirge it's quite gothic you have some staccato playing in there which is very interpolish lots of reverb reverb and uh, a lot of decay um much more than uh, the other songs and yeah just generally it's a cool dark horrible dirty song <laughs> so lyrically, what more could you ask for <laughs> yeah so lyrically or anything like that, do you have any ideas what you're thinking it might be about? Um, I'll be honest, I didn't hear a lot of the lyrics to any of these songs. With that, that line really stood out to me. Um, pairing that with the title of the song, I'd suggest it's a commentary on privilege, uh, maybe you know, power, abuse of power. Yeah. That's well, my sole suggestion. Yeah. Um, yeah, as I was listening to it, I thought it kind of sounded like someone who's at the end of their tether, looking back and reflecting in the horrors of their life. And um, there's an actual element of horror to it, you know. He's talking about all the bodies and all this stuff. And, you know, where will it end? 
Well, death really. <laughs> yeah. Everything ends. Um, and the image of the car, for instance, you know, he's saying there's nothing disturbed. It basically sounds like someone's killed themselves in it, I think is what they're trying to go for there. The song apparently references the book of Sephania, I don't even know how you say that, um, from the Christian Old Testament. The text from Sephania speaks of the day of the Lord, apparently, where God promises Sephania that he will destroy earth and the universe due to the state of uh, immense sin, disobedience. And the song where it repeats, you know, where will it end? Um, and I've got this off genius.com, which is cheating a little bit, but <laughs> it's asking when um, this day will finally come and human existence and consequently pain and sin will be destroyed. Oh, cool. So it's a judgment day kind of song. Maybe, yeah. People the being day. smited. Yeah for being so bloody sinful. Yeah. Um, and I was reading as well in that, that it was a reference to war as well. Hmm. Um, but someone will have to explain that to me. I didn't really, I didn't get that from the lyrics, but, you know, I'm open to hearing that suggestion. Uh, so yeah, that was Day of the Lord. I like this one. I think it's quite a cool second song um, on the album. And uh, yeah, what do you reckon? Yeah, yeah. Uh- Probably one of my favourites. Good, goody. So now we're going to go on to song number three, which is called Candidate. Let's have a listen. Candid thoughts on Candidate. Uh, I thought this was one of the weaker songs, less interesting. Um, it was just really ponderous, and there are other ponderous songs, um, but I felt that there was a bit more punch to them or, or just something more interesting going on uh, textually and sonically, and this it didn't really do much for me. Uh, fair enough. I don't mind it. Um I think, again, it's one of those songs that I appreciate a bit more now than I did um, earlier. Mm. Uh, you know, because, again, um, the song comes in quite slowly. Again, it's very dark. The guitar is hardly even here, really. There's a bit of playing with the feedback, a bit shoegazy almost style. Um, but, yeah, just when it's bass and vocals and a bit of drums, that minimalism just makes it sound very tender hmm. uh yeah all these strange off-putting noises going on around the room is you know can be quite quite interesting it just and also it just sounds very sincere as well um that's interesting you know, just, i mean tender isn't a word that i would associate maybe with this album so hmm. it's quite interesting um the, well you, you've heard something in this track what, what's it about lyrically or thematically yeah, well, uh, it's a, a kind of like a recurring theme throughout this out world, throughout Joy Division generally, but um, the idea of losing something, maybe. Mm. Um, losing sensation before, you know, here he's losing heart. It's the idea of failure, disappointment, fear, maybe. His relationship is failing. Um, in real life, that was happening with his wife as well. And he just doesn't feel the same way. 
Um, so yeah, it seems quite true, true to life, probably something that's actually quite personal for him. Um, and there's things like, you know, he feels guilty for making her change her mind, changing her values. Um, and you know, it could be that perhaps he's cheating on her and saying how he's, you know, not in the wrong, (laughs) you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's your fault, not mine almost. Um, and then, you know, I tried to get to you. Uh, he says at one point is in that you can, there's that sense of disconnection with his partner. Um, and it's all quite sad, really. I mean, the whole song just feels quite empty, quite lonely, very stark, quite desperate. And those sounds, are, it's almost like ghosts wailing around you sometimes when you listen to it. Um, so again, it's one of those tracks that I normally probably would have skipped, but later on in my years i've kind of come to appreciate it a bit more i think that's a nice reading of it um (laughs) yeah coming at it more uh from an angle of it being almost an ambient kind of song just creating atmosphere and uh interesting texture yeah yeah i think it does do that um quite bold though for a third song at this point yeah. in an album, normally you'd be wanting to make a bit more of a statement, maybe. Um, it's the sort of thing, again, having listened to this in a, kind of the wrong order, it made more sense to me, you know, coming towards the end of the whole album. Yeah, I can see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, um, it is bold, but I think it's um, a good move to make. It's, you know, heart and sleeve time kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think it's quite a cool, cool choice to have there. So the next one is Insight. So let's have a listen to that. Insight. I'm going to try and stop making puns. It's really not the time or place. <laughs> Why? When is the time and place? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Working at the sun? I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, Insights had some of the best spacey sounds. This is when I really, um, I think, realised that there were a lot of interesting yeah, production quirks going on. Um, mm. aside, aside from everything to do with like you know the, the, the sort of sparse arrangements and drum sounds and things, I was like, oh, there's all these extra uh, synthy or delay, echoey bits and bobs going on. Um, so that my main takeaway from the song really was was that. And after that, I kind of kept an ear out for more stuff that was going on in the background of other tracks. Yeah, it's um, yeah, you're right to kind of say that it is very much he does a lot of production here apparently ian's vocals were recorded via a telephone oh, really? a telephone line <laughs> yeah um just another example of the the weird stuff that was kind of going on um, was that intentional or was that because he couldn't yeah. come to the studio or something? no no it was, it was intentional it was uh. an intentional thing um 
so again, it's a, a kind of slow entry into the song. And it, so a lot of the songs seem to have like a note and then they kind of dance around it. So, you know, notes dancing above it, dancing below it, but very rarely hitting that actual note that the song seems to be striving for. This is, mm. this is I'm going quite um, abstract in terms of talking about music here, but. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, like they have the weird space laser type sounds. And then again, the notes almost go half a step down as if it's almost stumbling stumbling on itself and uh, the repetition um, almost like, you know, worms in your brain. Um, Strings you along and doesn't deliver. Yeah. And it's, it's cool. And I think a lot of the songs in this album kind of, kind of do that. They, they, they take a note, a key note or whatever, and they kind of dance around it, but rarely fall back onto that key note. Um, Yeah. Now you say that, I, I, Notice that in some of the other songs, they, they they kind of they kind of wind up, wind up around the same sort of repetition, mm. and build anticipation, and actually a lot that that's what builds a lot of the anticipation rather than the normal kind of dynamics you would get in a, in a kind of like a rock song, yeah, um, and then they don't really quite pay off, yeah, um, which then can leave you with that kind of like resigned sort of. Uh, sort of depressed feeling almost um but in a good way <laughs> yeah it kind of leaves you wanting more um, yeah a little bit it doesn't quite scratch that itch which is what what again makes it feel feels quite uncomfortable as a listen sometimes um <clears throat> lyrically it's very suicidal really um much like most of the other stuff You're talking about how like dreams end um and that to be honest that can make you feel more down than anything um but yeah, as he says, like I don't care anymore. I've lost the will to want more. I mean, Jesus, that's, yeah. that's you know that's on the nose, isn't it? In terms of depressing lyrics. Um, 
Yeah, and a lot of it, is, it sounds like he's just kind of remembering the better days of his of his youth and how now he's just not afraid of death anymore. Um, so it's really like, you know, balls out in terms of like, you know, deep, dark, depressed shit going on here. It's, um, I mean, that's obviously some of the appeal and, and the enduring appeal probably of this album and Joy Division's music because um, obviously that speaks to some of the troubles and feelings that a lot of people have around that sort of age uh, yeah. or any age but especially I think at that that kind of age and I don't know how old he was here was it like 20, 22, 23? Yeah, something like that, mad. Um, so, but I mean just giving vo- giving voice to that which actually a lot of other people feel i mean obviously that's the mark of a good good writer or artist um but it's really it is it's really 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 sad and miserable to think um you know he he, he could have actually maybe he could have come through this the other side yeah. um like a lot <clears throat> of people do with a bit more perspective on things um, yeah, I mean, think about what you were doing when you were like twenty one, twenty two. Yeah, so like, fucking hell, and like, yeah, you know, it's mad. I think there's also the element, and what you know, and it's horrible to say this, but the fact that you know he killed himself, he made all this dark, depressing music about using lyrics like that, and then actually went through with it, kind of gives it almost this like untouchable uh, sincerity, almost. Yeah. Like, he said it and he fucking meant it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that kind of, um, you know, speaks to people who might be in that same position. Cause it's like, he's not just, you know, he's not singing about it for the sake of singing about it or like what, you know, artists do, like when they play up to the tortured artist, you know, bohemian kind of thing, he lived it and he died from it. That always like, gives art or music or, or literature added weight whether that's right or wrong. Yeah, it does, interesting. Uh, I think, validate it for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, like, I know we talk about Nirvana all the time, but, like, with Kurt and him writing his depressed lyrics or whatever and having songs called, like, I hate myself and I want to die or whatever and all this, and then he actually goes and kills himself. Um, we got, like, a lot more from Kurt, um, but with, like, Joy Division and Curtis, it's just, like... You know, every song is melancholy, darkness, depression, you know, disappointment, failing and all this. Um, and obviously I'm not saying that, you know, not the, the majority of Kurt's work or whatever, but it really feels like with this, it's just like, it is dark. <laughs> like, yeah. it's not, you know, there's no like teen spirit or something yeah. um, or anything like that. It is pure darkness. Um, and even like the biggest, you know, Love Will Tear Us Apart, which gets, which came out later on, obviously. Um, and I'll kind of go into, get, go into this cause, uh, I went to see the, um, Joy Division orchestrated at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, or maybe I should just go into it now, but basically it was Royal Albert Hall, Peter Hook, who, um, you know, that's why he had more of a Bernie Sumner, him and New Order fell out. Um, Peter Hook this is because apparently Peter Hook says that he was told that he took Joy Division and so they were going to take New Order. Ah, and, I didn't know that. 
<clears throat> yeah. Not and yeah, so that's why they don't get on or whatever. But um, I think they do. It's just that classic thing of like, it's just a whole bunch of grumpy old men now that don't, yeah. you know, don't really care even that much anymore. But um, yeah, so it's Peter Hook and they played a whole bunch of Joy Division songs at the Royal Albert Hall with an orchestra. And that might sound cool, but it was really hit and miss. Um, some songs just shouldn't be done with an orchestra, for instance. And they had a guy come on, and I did research his name, but I can't remember now. He basically did an Ian Curtis impression for some oh, of the songs. My. It was really good. He was really good. Really? Yeah, and it really surprised me because I was I was like thinking, oh, here we go. Looked like him, danced like him, sounded like him. And I was like, fucking hell, that's good. I enjoyed that rather than Peter Hook singing or what was worse was fucking opera singers yeah. getting up female opera, like, you know, singing these songs with all like that warbly, you know, professional singing. I was just like, that, like that, I don't know. Like, that turkey wattle sound. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Did yeah, not like that. I can, see, I can imagine that being interesting. So I wouldn't say, oh, they shouldn't have done that. But... It's a high risk kind of thing. I think the potential for it to be awful, I can imagine being high. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you know, it's the first and only time they did it. And I would say there were some songs which were like, that was amazing. They, and the thing is, they played like Love Will Tear Us Apart twice, once at the beginning and once at the end. Okay. And by the end, like, bearing in mind the crowd is namely white, 50 plus, I would say. And people were like chanting and I said this on a Minnesota not too long ago, people chanting, you know, the chorus, love will tear us apart. And I'm like, it's that whole thing of like when art hits the mainstream, it just loses all sense of meaning. Mm. And these guys have probably been sing are singing this. They've probably been singing it for like all those 40 years because it started off as like, well, it's still a great song as and of itself. Mm. But, you know, it's about a couple breaking up, basically. It's sad. It's a sad song, and yet it's got this like jubilant edge to it, whatever. Again, yeah. full of melancholy, and they're chanting it like a fucking football chant. I'm like, do you even know what you're singing? Yeah. <clears throat> like it's a very to me, it still feels like a very personal um, song. A very like you know, as they say in the um, in their interviews and stuff, the fact that these lyrics like they felt like it was intrusive to even hear hear these lyrics mm. because it was so personal to Ian. And you've got these fucking bunch of old fat, bald tossers with pints of beer glugging around, singing Love Will Tear Us Apart again. And you're just like, this is, and I was just I remember thinking, this isn't right. Like, this makes me feel weird. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's not what it's about. And all right, it's, you know, people release stuff and then it becomes one with the public or whatever. And it's not the artists anymore and all this stuff you could go into. But, I was just like, this doesn't, you know, I didn't come here for this. Um, and yeah, the best stuff was the Ian Curtis um, lookalike. He could actually sing because he was, you know, on the stage in a fair distance away because on the other side of the hall. But um, yeah, uh, it was a bit hit and miss. But they did some of the stuff off here as well. Um, See, I can't imagine, and that's why I say, it's, it's kind of interesting to think, but because I can't imagine these songs being arranged and performed in that way some of them can't if you know <laughs> what I mean they did it and I was like that didn't work did it <laughs> um, I'd be interested in hearing that do you know what I mean even if yeah, I I'm think sure it's on YouTube somewhere it'd be awful uh, yeah I, maybe I'll look that up 
Yeah, check it out. Right, uh, next track is New Dawn Fades. So let's have a listen to that. and drums and again it feels it feels quite rough there's like the drums are a bit like and again it's kind of happens out the album a bit like an industrial engine um and here it's got quite i thought it's quite like some 60s guitar work almost um and again it's a, there's a build-up there are layers of sounds being added as the song progresses its voice rises and then it, it just fades out and it's quite a cool way i thought to end the uh end the first side as it were in your case so lyrically uh i don't know i was wondering is it um, is it discussing the differences between people uh, a loaded gun won't set you free so you say i thought it was quite a cool line but, um you know just this this threat of suicide <laughs> um you know yeah that's quite, it, it's uh... quite funny in a weird way it's quite darkly humorous you know, like he's obviously already told someone that he's going to shoot yourself, shoot oh, himself. Yeah. And then he's like, you know, oh, you say it won't set me free, but it could kind of thing. Yeah. You know, you don't know. So you say. Uh, but yeah, again, it kind of deals with disappointment, negative stuff. Um, yeah, it's again, it's quite a skip worthy track. Probably it's not the most amazing thing. Um, but I think it's quite a cool way to end that first side of the record. Yeah, it didn't quite um, stick out for me amongst the others. Is this one that you would gloss over in your younger days? Yeah, probably. And it's the same, you know, with I Remember Nothing as well. It's a bit like, yeah, it's just a, that slow final song, which is just trying to leave you on in a certain state of mind or whatever, whereas I'm just like, I want to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> like, come on, let's listen to the next one. Um, which is good because then it takes us straight into She's Lost Control. Bowels 
but thank, thankfully not my faculties. Mm. And so, your fecal, fecal teas. I could, yeah. So I can discuss the song with you, however I am sitting in a pile of my own poo. <laughs> um, <laughs> Makes a change. <laughs> this uh, was the best song, in my best. opinion, on the album. Mm. Um, not because I've heard it um, a lot. Because I know, you know, when you think of Joy Division songs, you think of Love Will Tear Us Apart, Isolation, and this is often in the conversation as well. Um, but I wasn't actually even familiar with it. If you'd asked me to hum it or something, I couldn't have done. Okay. Um, so I was really coming at this with a fresh pair of ears, and I do think this is the strongest song. I think for me, this kind of encapsulated everything good about their sound and like what's going on with the production of this album um it's got all the kind of like hallmarks and motifs you know it's got this really really desolate kind of sound Mm. um you know it's super sparse arrangement this like hollow unsatisfying flat drum sound like snare yeah um there sounds like like echoing from an empty chamber again like like wiry little guitar and actually all of this sounds like really unappealing and again almost like it'd be an ambient kind of soundscape but then that guitar lead is so kind of melodic that kind of pulls it all together holds your interest and you know like we were saying before it kind of plays around there and kind of just like winds, 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 winds up um, until you do get a nice payoff, I think, on the kind of like, well, is it a chorus? I don't really know. Mm. Um, So, yeah, like an unconventional, almost a pop song and almost danceable, but just skew with enough to sound really really different yeah i'd agree with all that it's um i like how it's just funny that it's you know factory records and the songs from this album do sound quite industrial so this for me sounds like a kind of factory sound almost yeah Um, yeah his vocals are kind of swimming in the background um and i like that high bass sound that um yeah, that they've got here. And she said the guitar is like, it's it's weird. It's like scratchy, it's quite raw and sounds quite horrible and yeah. yet endearing in the same way. Very catchy tune. Um, and again, it sounds like the different parts here just shouldn't fit together, but they do. And it's, yeah, the snare sounds like, as she said, it's quite flat. To me, it sounded like an empty Coke bottle or something yeah. getting here. It doesn't sound like a drum at all. Um and it's just a fucking weird song. It's strange, and yet it's really cool at the same time. Um, lyrically, uh, this is kind of one of the more publicised ones because um, basically the, it's about a girl, well, apparently, because um, Ian worked at the, uh, what was it, the Department of Disabled Services at the job centre or whatever, and there was a girl that would come in and she was an epileptic and he was, you know, she he was looking after her essentially. Um, you know, she'd come in to see him and she stopped coming in for a while. 
And he's like, okay, she's got a job or whatever. And then he found out later on down the line that she'd had a seizure and died. Um, Um, Yeah. So, and it really took a toll on him because especially obviously when he got epilepsy as well, um, it's an actual, you know, it's dangerous. Yeah. So, uh, yes, it really stuck with him. And if you, if you read the lyrics, it's, you know, it's kind of what you were saying the other day, um, about, you know, Nirvana and Kurt again, talk about Nirvana, but like the way taking very specific and then, but being able to make it almost universal. Mm. So you, you can read it as it's literally about ha- having epilepsy. Yes. She's lost control, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but in the grander scheme, it's also about, you know, someone who needs help, essentially. It could be like a drug problem, doesn't have to be. It could just be a mental health thing. It's just someone who's just trying to, you know, get help, who's, who's lost control. Yeah. So, um, again, it works on the personal and also the universal. And I Good think point. it's just, yeah, it's a really cool song. Um, out of interest, have you seen the film Control? Yeah, funny enough, I was trying to, because um, I remembered it, I saw it on the cinema when it came out and I had it on DVD somewhere, but I can't find it. I think it's at my mum's. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I remember seeing it on, I think it was Netflix or Prime. And I was like, oh, I'll watch it. Uh, this is last night. I was like, I'll watch it because knowing that we were going to do this today. And um, yeah, and it's not, you know, part of it now. You have to buy it, whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to buy it. I've seen it like three times or whatever. Um it's really good. Really, really great film. And I think Sam Riley um, is really good in it as well. And I actually, uh, um, little anecdote, near where I worked in, in Farringdon, which is in London, there's a little pub at which Steve Lamack goes to every day. And he sits there and smokes and has a, has a pint at lunchtime. And um, so, yeah, I'd walk past Steve Lamack like every day, basically. But there would also be the odd other celeb and one time it was, um, I was just like, God, look at that fucking guy there, like some homeless kid or whatever. And it was all like, you know, very thin, smoking a cigarette, sitting outside, reading a book. Um, and it was Sam Riley. And I thought he was homeless. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah, he was just sitting there. Cultivating like, a, uh, air of an auteur. Yeah. But you know, when it was like, man, you know, uh, She's playing like Ian Curtis, like a very isolated, depressive, like, you know, going especially in control or something. I was just like, man, it's like life imitating art here. Like, it just looks like this sad, homeless, lonely guy sitting there with, a, you know, with a beer and a fag and a book. Um, and here he is, you know, some Hollywood star. He's not a Hollywood star, really, is he? But, yeah. Um, Good acting family, the Rileys. Oh, Who's he related to? Um, Lisa Riley, I think. His sister. Fuck off. Fuck off. <laughs> uh, literally, by the way, is literally chalk an and cheese. <laughs> Fucking Lisa Riley. Um, if anyone doesn't know who that is, <laughs> which is going to be maybe probably everyone, uh, feel free to Google her um, because it's not interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. I'm sorry. That's right. Um, we have to bring yeah. levity to this this uh, dark discussion. Yeah. Somehow. Trying to. But yeah, what were you going to say about Control? Did you like it? It was directed by Anton Corbin, who did all the famous Joy Division, you know, Ian Curtis photos. Um, 
and it's black and white but I really loved it I don't know what you thought to be honest I can't remember it's been so long since I saw it <laughs> I remember it was very um, I mean I remember it was very factual so some of what you've just been saying uh, sort of remembered some bits and bobs like him sitting in the uh, office at his job yeah um, and stuff about the seizures um well, it's mainly based off the um, book that his wife wrote, but it was mainly based off that. So apparently when, you know, Peter Hook, he's, Peter Hook, fucking hell, he just doesn't, he's just so, like, forthright. Like, this is what, if a proper, like, Mancunian, like, fuck off, this is what I think, and if you don't agree, then fuck you. <laughs> that kind of attitude. Yeah. Um, apparently, you know, they're like, oh, how true was it? It's like, well, it's a movie, isn't it? <laughs> so, it's like, all right. Yeah, What's I guess that supposed so. to mean? Fair enough. Well, I think it's the, not true. he's trying to infer that it's like, you know, there's, um, you know, they've, they've been... An element of dramatisation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Touching from a distance. That's it. I used to have a copy of this. I don't think I read it and I don't have it anymore. Fucking hell, sorry, that went off on one, didn't it? Did you, have you seen 24-Hour Party People as well? Do you know what? I've never seen that. It's good. It's stupid. It's But it's good. It's Steve Coogan. Yeah. And Tony Riley. <laughs> um. <laughs> Tony Wilson. Uh, uh. Um, and the Joy Division stuff in that and the Ian Curtis guy is fucking good as well. Um, I've always wanted to see it. Yeah, you should do because it's stupid. It's like a classic British film where it's like, you know, they're trying to be like Danny Boyle or something. You know, it's all like fast and like loose and... You know, oh God, wasn't it crazy kind of thing like the British, um, those British films kind of were during yeah. those days. But um, yeah, the Joy Division stuff is pretty fucking cool. I mean, it's it's all, yeah, they're a very minor part of it. But um, yeah, it's an interesting look at Factory Records in a, in a more comical um, viewpoint, more satirical way, rather than trying to be, you know, this is how it happened. Like this podcast. Well, yeah. Did this really ever happen? <laughs> no, I mean how we're how we're bringing such a great degree of levity and, and, and uh, satire, satire to Joy Division's unknown pleasures. <laughs> Who would have thought about it? People would have come into unknown pleasures not knowing what pleasures uh, did indeed lay before them, what joy they would be able to find, oh, so on and so forth. But let's get back in. <laughs> let's get back into it. Some shadow play, I think. Yes, my favourite kind of play. This this is what happens before foreplay. This is the real touching from a distance. <laughs> <laughs> you start with shadows, oh, and then it dear. gets and then it gets physical. Um, yeah, what did you think of this, mate? Um, have you have we have you played it? No, let's play it now. Where a road sank to the I was moving through the silence with a motion waiting for you. 
right, so Dan, that was Shadow Play. What do you think? Uh, I really like this one. Um, I think, you know, building on what we've just heard with She's Lost Control, I think this is a little bit more conventional. Um, still retains the kind of same vibe and ambience. Um, but the way it kind of like, it broods and builds is a little more, yeah, like a more conventional kind of rock song, I think. Um, so in many ways, sort of more satisfying maybe to a more casual listener. Um, but yeah, really liked it. Yeah, it's probably one of my favourite tracks off the album. Um, so it's one of the, like, you know, talking about Interpol stuff, I can really imagine this as an Interpol song. Um, I can see that, yeah. Yeah, maybe if it was a little bit rockier and his vocals sounded a bit more urgent, I'd think, yeah, this would be an Interpol song. It's got some cool kind of rock solo, weirdly, um, with like this whip lightning sound effect going on as well. Like, yeah, like Hi-Ho Silver. Um, and I feel like this could have been, uh, this is, well, this it is one of the more commercially friendly tracks, perhaps. Um, if you can ever say that anyway, with anything from this album, but yeah, yeah, it's got this like nice little settled bit. Um, and there are some harmonies in there as well, which is quite strange for this album. Well, vocal harmonies. Yeah. Do you know, Do you know I, that's, I've twigged that. I, I dismissed that um, thought. But I do remember thinking, oh, there's some interesting vocal stuff going on. And then I thought, has he just been double tracked? I think it's a slight harmony. I, some, I can't remember now without listening to it again directly. But Is one of the other mem- band members singing? Uh, it might be. I think Peter Hook mm. is singing on something. Oh, that's <laughs> Don't interesting. Don't know if this track. Uh, yeah. Um, lyrically, it's. I feel like it's kind of about you know, searching for hope within depression. Um, I also wonder if it's to do with like playing a gig, playing a concert, you know, shadow play. I don't know. For me, somehow that kind of conjured up this image of playing a gig. Obviously, it's there's a lot of shadows. So that kind of like, you know, playing into the darkness almost. Um, and I wondered if it was, you know, it's the song talking about him trying to connect to his audience because obviously they're there and he's him and, you know, I don't know. Or was, trying to connect with anyone. Yeah, exactly. Just be about, yeah, any that kind of relationship an audience has with the artist and all that. I don't know. Um, so I haven't really got much more than that really on it. But uh, yeah, generally speaking, I really like the song. This is up there. Same here. Same here. So let's move on to Wilderness. Let's have a listen to that. feel wild or bewildered <laughs> or mild yeah um i really enjoyed this as well um i think the these songs in the latter half of the album 
more, I don't know, well, they seem a bit darker sounding to me. So I'm enjoying this little run of songs. This really reminded me of Therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, not a band that I, you know, particularly really, really like, but I do like quite a bit of their stuff. And um, it really sounded to me so evident after listening to this. Like this is the blueprint of a lot of early therapy stuff, except yeah. with, with loads of like more industrial kind of um, sound on top, which was interesting because then you said that about She's Lost Control, is that a lot of this sounds like an industrial factory kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I thought that was quite evident on here. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I think it's quite a cool, cool little number. It's it's kind of got this like funny bassline start and then the guitar following quite closely, and yeah, it kind of reminds me. Since you said about therapy, weirdly, it reminds me of almost like it could be a Doors song. Um, and I think Ian sounds a little bit like Jim uh, as well here, um, but that could just be me. Um, I that is. And a shocking assertion. <laughs> I'll have to go and give it closer listening. Yeah, do. Everything, I mean, I'm talking, you know, latter years probably, but um, everything sounds really far away. It's as if speaking to you through space. Um, well, much like the cover, which we'll get onto a bit later, actually. Ooh. But it's like it's something from another dimension or something that's trying to reach you. Mm. Um, lyrically, it's quite, it's one of the more obvious ones where it seems to be about how shit organised religion is, basically. Um, and kind of taking the piss out of it, belittling it, really, all, all religions. Um, yeah, I don't know if you kind of read into that at all. No, sorry, I didn't quite um, pick up on any of the lyrics to this one. Um, but again, that's just interesting if that's the case, how encompassing the kind of themes of this album are in terms of things that might influence uh, someone in their early 20s. Yeah, true. It's kind of covering all bases, really, isn't it? Yeah, ticking all the boxes. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, let's listen to the next track, which is Interzone. Upbeat punk rocker. Yes. Um, probably, again, felt a bit like the most kind of one-note type song here in terms of its, you know, not in terms of like musicality, but um, in terms of what it's doing. I was a bit, I was honestly surprised at this stage to hear this song. Um, right. Because it really just like wears what it is on its sleeve. Um, stuck out like a sore thumb. I mean, I still enjoyed it, um, but this really kind of felt like um, the the punk, as opposed to everything else being 
the kind of the post punk, you know. This was another sort of take on them trying to do buzzcocks or almost like a Ramones kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's. Um, I thought it was great. Yeah, really cool, upbeat rock song. Um, and you can you can imagine this has the roots. Bear in mind, like they're a seventies band. Um, and you can imagine this has the roots of being like a proper seventies rock song. If it had some like you know more um, normal, let's say like um, production value behind it. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, yeah, it's still this quite. It's still quite minimalist in its own way i think um i find the i find the talking at the edge of the song to be really annoying to be honest um i like the woos in the chorus that that, that <laughs> happened but that that talking of the lyrics like that kind of happens to one side i just can't get on board with it properly um and i feel like it's almost holding it down maybe from being just a balls out rock song I could be interested in what it would sound like if you took those kind of talking bits out of it. But that would make it, I think, I mean, I feel like maybe that's what this was. It'd be interesting to know, actually, like when this was written, if this was written like earlier than some of the other material. Mm. But this feels like maybe then, yeah, where the producer has tried to bring it more into line with the other songs. Yeah. By sort of pulling it down a bit and, 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 you know, screwing it up and degrading it a bit. Yeah, I can see that. Um, so I only really recently, up through doing this research for this, realised that it's supposed to, like, Interzone is from Naked Lunch. Oh, really? Um, it's, a, it's the city in it, basically. Um which is a, a book by William Best Burroughs that people don't know. And yeah, so it's, and that's why this song's a bit more abstract maybe, um, but it still deals with the same themes here. We're talking isolation, loneliness, violence as well. Um, but yeah, just having, just looking at it now from the perspective of Naked Lunch, um, yeah, it feels a little bit more like it makes sense in a weird way. Um yeah, that's all I've really got to say about that one. Interesting. Yeah, it certainly gives it a bit more context. Yeah. It's a good it's a good track. It's a good one. And then now we reach the final song, which is I Remember Nothing. Uh <laughs> Prince Andrew's <laughs> latest <laughs> confession. Um, um uh, very timely. Uh, let's have a listen. What do you remember? 
Very little, I'm afraid. <laughs> it didn't make a huge impression on me, this song. Um, I've only got one word written down. Um, lumbering. So, uh, <laughs> again, yeah, I think, okay. I mean, in terms of an album listening experience, I like the inclusion of songs like this and New Dawn Fades. Um you know, they're there to do a certain thing, convey a certain mood and obviously wrap things up. Um, but when you pick them apart, separate songs, and especially here, you know, nearly six minutes, um, I did just, it just didn't, it doesn't give me much, I'm afraid. And also, it's, you know, if, if you just think, oh, okay, you know, it's nice sounds and textures and, I think I've already I've already heard those sounds and textures now over the course of the album, so I need I need them to be um, hung around something, some kind of skeleton, and there isn't one here. It's interesting that you say that. Again, this is one of the tracks that I wouldn't have bothered listening to, but now in context of the album and coming back and listening to it, I think it's actually quite important. <laughs> um mainly because as I'm listening to it now, it feels like, it feels like a man defeated. It feels like, you know, um, because it it's kind of eases you in again at the beginning. You hear the sound of something smashing, which is, a, I believe, a bottle or whatever. Um, and Ian crooning over the top. And it kind of sounds almost ritualistic. Um mm quite soft and it's almost like it's not even really a song and it's always as if they're starting to like fall asleep a little bit um and it's depressing but it just feels like it's someone slowly giving up so having that as the final track and listening back to it in the context of the album it has a lot more resonance now than it did as a young whippersnapper huh. where it's just like i'm i'm here for the boobs you know, or whatever, <laughs> like, rather than songs, songs like this. <laughs> I don't think I've ever used that. <laughs> that where, the, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> Again, uh, sounds like something Prince Andrew might have said during his recent news night interview. Yeah, whilst I'm not, not sweating. Yeah, uh. <laughs> for the boobs. Did you say that? Well, I'm, I might have said it. Fucking Prince Andrew. Um, yes. So lyrically, uh, it's it feels like it's kind of talking about how people are together and yet they live entirely different worlds. That person you're sitting next to on the bus or the train, as Dan was feeling sick earlier on, <laughs> um, you've both, you're both in your own worlds and even though you're sitting next to each other, they'll never connect you're so very separate even though you're so very close um and that's kind of what i kind of got the feeling that's what it's talking about sorry i just uh your your words sent me into a sort of deep regressive space <laughs> as i considered that haunting image yeah um, yeah i mean and if that's what this song conveys like i said you know it's got its place in the context of the album, almost like a kind of tone poem just to express, maybe wrap up final kind of themes and feelings. 
Yeah. And that's the thing, like when you come to the end of this, it's like, I really do feel like you've been taken on a journey, like a really dark, uplifting at times, strange, yeah, experience. I don't know what you think. Um, I'd agree with, with that. I think, yeah, it certainly... Um, you know, like a lot of other powerful albums, it has, I think, the power to affect you emotionally to a point where it pulls you into its way of feeling and thinking. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like there's certain albums you can put them on and it doesn't matter what mood you're in, it will make you feel how it wants to feel. Um, so it does absolutely sort of draw you into um, it, this this kind of pretty stark and desolate kind of place. But obviously, you know, that's quite reassuring for certain people if you're sharing those sort of feelings. And you, know, you don't have to obviously be, you don't have to be suicidal uh, to resonate with the ideas and, and the kind of feelings of isolation that are uh, so so endemic in this album. Mm-hmm. Um so I think that's that's its power really is in you know it's very I think um idiosyncratic like I said it stands out from other post-punk albums um with with that very specific unusual sound and I think it totally absorbs you in that it's just a shame we couldn't get you know more out of Ian before he unfortunately died I mean luckily we got closer and you know there's loads of other tracks that obviously released um, in the band's very short lifespan. But, um, yeah, for me, this is like, it's such a strong debut and it just sounds like, it's not something, how do I put this? There's certain, like, classic albums where I think, yeah, I get that it's a classic, but I will probably listen to something else. That makes sense. I would listen to how that album has evolved into whatever that band or whatever it might be rather than going back to that album. But with this album specifically, I will go back and listen to this if that's what I want to listen to, because it's so uniquely joy division and it's, it's not ever been emulated or, and obviously like the music has evolved, but it's never been able to capture that essence. Like no one's been able to do that since, if that makes sense. So I'm not just going back to it because it's a classic album because I feel like I should listen to it. I'm going back because I'm still looking. I still I still haven't got that <laughs> since this album was released, really, or since Joy Division generally. I still don't think anything else quite you know scratches that itch that they were able to do. And I know there's a, an element here. Where it's like you know fucking hell, they're only around for like <laughs> like three years or something. Yeah. Um, you know, Jesus, like chill out. But, you know, probably wasn't that. It, you know, it becomes some of these things get drenched up in like um, myth and legend, and like, you know, oh, were they really as important as everyone says, or is it just because he fucking killed himself and they were only around for like three minutes? Um, and I get there's an element of that to it, but I just really feel like a lot of bands have tried to kind of copy this, or they've been inspired by it, but none have been able to kind of capture the rawness the weirdness and to be fair like there's an element where it's like 
as I was saying earlier, like sometimes it's like, man, this could easily sound really fucking shit. And I think it just is able to, that's what just makes it so interesting. Yeah. I, I think really, like I said, I've listened to this uh, pretty much in isolation, really. So, you know, forget about kind of almost everything around it and the sad fact of, you know, Ian Curtis's death. And you can just listen to it on its own, on its own merits. And I think it really stands up. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, so we'll just talk a bit more about um, about it before we call it a day. So the, the cover is quite infamous. Um, iconic. It is iconic. Truly and... iconic. Uh, if anything, actually, <laughs> my takeaway is this album is more than a T-shirt. Yeah, because a lot of people will recognise the design probably from being on t-shirts before they even acknowledge it as a, a piece of album artwork or yeah. having heard any of the songs. Well, what's funny is that when Joy Division were about, um, they wanted to, uh, the Factory Records or whatever, or not Factory Records, whoever it was, wanted to make t-shirts, but their manager, um, whose name I forget, let's just call him Rob for the sake of it, um, and maybe it was Rob, uh, <laughs> said, no, like it's selling out. We don't make t-shirts. Wow. So, and apparently there was a guy who would follow Joy Division around, you know, like you do these days, who would sell t-shirts out the front and he just made a fucking ton of money. Cause he was just, he was selling knockoff t-shirts with the fucking album cover on and people were buying them. And apparently huh. at one point he felt so guilty that he came in to give a check to the band to be like, you know, I, I you know, I'm going to give you some money. And apparently no the manager took the check and just ripped it up. Wow. Didn't want it. Yeah. That's amazing. Because it, it probably that... continues to be like one of the most bootlegged T-shirts, I think. Yeah. So um, it's funny that it started is. life as a bootleg. Yeah. And that was it. And obviously they did later on down the line do it like officially or whatever. But for, for ages, um, they definitively said that it wasn't cool, basically, to put it on a T-shirt. It's not what they wanted to do. Wow. And, this, and sorry, this wasn't the band. This is the band's manager. Um, yeah, who's kind of pushing this? And Factory um, had a lot of those sort of ideas as well, didn't they? About- yeah, exactly. Like Factory were very particular. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's quite interesting. So it's funny you say it about it being a t-shirt because it was only really later on that Joy Division and you know, well, the guys left and New Order whatever actually got any money for it being on a t-shirt. Yeah, um, wow. But in case people don't know, apparently um, Bernie uh, was looking through a book on. Um, like astrophysics or whatever, and saw this picture, which was um, the signal from a radio pulsar and uh, pulsar, pulsar, yeah, whatever. And essentially, it's a dying sun collapsing in on itself, um, which you know, in itself uh-huh. is quite a cool thing. And yes, yeah, so Bernie was like, Oh, this looks cool, took it to um, Peter Saville, who because it was it was black on white before and he's did it obviously white on black um and yeah that was it that was the that was the cover i didn't know that's uh, what it was yeah um but it wasn't picked for that it was obviously just like this is cool and yeah i think the fact that it sounds like it's you know when you're looking at it not even knowing what it is the fact that it sounds like what radio waves or some a signal of some sort, like as if it's penetrating it from space, like the white on black. 
um, makes or you, touching from a distance. Yeah, yeah. Um, just gives it some, makes it feel special. Like this is something that's coming from another dimension. Almost, um, it's intriguing, and yeah, I think it's really a fucking cool, iconic image. Yeah. I mean, obviously, black and white's always a good, a good move if you've got music that is maybe a little bit cold sounding, or um, or you want to express some kind of like distance, um, like create a barrier almost between you and the audience. So I think that that works. And yeah, like you say, it suggests some kind of wave, um, like some kind of inability to ex- express a kind of communication. Yeah. Um, so even without knowing that that you said about the collapsing sun, which is very cool, <laughs> I think yeah. you, you still pick up on on some of the, the themes that are you know like was inherent in the album. Yeah, you know, it's a great image to match the music. Mm, it is definitely, definitely, and um, yeah, and obviously this album had a massive impact on uh, a lot of bands. Um, like I know recently I saw a thing with uh who was it? Um Henry Rollins was talking about it was one of the most important albums to him. Trent Reznor as well. Like Bono apparently was <laughs> was like a massive, massive fan. Apparently he told Tony Wilson after Ian died, um he told Tony Wilson not to worry because he was gonna um pick up where Joy Division left off. Oh my god. Yeah. I was thinking that earlier though, you know when we were talking about one of the ones that's more anthemic. Day of the Lords, maybe. Yeah. I did think in the hands of, like, U2's producer, that that's what it would sound like. Mm. Um, so I can imagine I can imagine him saying something like that. Well, he said, he certainly did. Terrible. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so for Enemy, Paul Morley from Enemy said that it was, uh, the reason why I picked this specific one in particular, he says that it was private music forced out in the open. Which I think is quite apt, quite an apt description. Nicely put. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's just nowadays it's known as like one of the best albums ever. Some people have said one of the at least one of the best debut albums um, ever. It's usually kind of knocking around in people's top fifty. Um, yeah. Best album covers. It's usually around in that. I'm trying to think, what else? Dan, you got any any comments? Any final thoughts? Um, often we have a little think about, you know, other recommendations, don't we, if you like this album, uh, some of the kind of influence it's had. I think we've covered, like, the influence it's had, really. You know, like I, I was saying, I think you can hear that all this sound in a lot of modern um, indie kind of stuff but that's kind of moved away from the post-punk and... Um, kind of been a bit more a bit bit richer in the way it presents its its sound hmm. um with 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 positive and negative effects i think you know i think it's easy to pull some of these these aspects of the music you know danceability and sometimes even like mimicking his voice to a degree but i think you can you can you can Pick a wrong one. You can smell them from a mile away. Because the lyrics are so uh, sort of contrived and insincere, you know? Yeah. Um, 
But stuff that I was thinking, you know, when I was listening to this, it reminded me of a lot of things that probably influenced it and then have had subsequently influenced. Um, So if you like the kind of post-punk sound of this, um, I would check out Wire, Mm -hmm. probably Pink Flag, first album. Um, You know, Wire are very... It's a very descriptive name of their kind of sound. It made me think, you know, that scratchy kind of uh, that scratchy guitar sound, a little bit pokey and unsatisfying. Yeah. Um, and some some like Public Image Limited, like building on that, you know, Sex Pistols um, influence. Obviously, at around the same time, Johnny Rotten was off doing his own post Sex Pistols stuff. Yeah. Um, so those those early pill albums are very very good. Um, if you like the kind of like the gothic element of this album, um, I really thought like the very earliest Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds albums are worth checking out. I mean, obviously like stuff like Bauhaus and Susie and the Banshees and all that is, is obvious if you're looking at some early gothic music. But I don't know, I, it really made me think of like, especially the first Nick Cave album okay. um, from Her to Eternity, um, some aspects of that. Yeah. Um, some early Fall, another band that, you know, famously Marky Smith and loads of them were at that, that Sex Pistols gig and um, from Salford as well. Yeah. Um, I thought if you like that really stark sound um, and some of the more like synthy kind of sounds, then a lot of those arrangements, it kind of reminded me of the Kraftwerk album Trans Europe Express. Yep. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely like a, I think a touching point for this album. In terms of just like sheer darkness like oppressive dark and like really um you know bearing the soul songs of love and hate by leonard cohen um another album that's in like a really stark black and white sleeve um that's yeah like both of these are similarly similarly like on a just a really 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 dark just giving you over and over and over um but obviously yeah like a really fantastic album songs of love and hate and probably leonard cohen's best interesting very interesting yeah i haven't listened to any of that yeah Mm. if if you haven't i strongly encourage everyone Mm. um yeah i was just trying to think like what i would recommend like as i said before interpol mainly their first album um is i'd say well it's not even a good modern day one it's about 20 years old now <laughs> um but still that's worth listening to uh like who else like Bauhaus um yeah. would probably be a, a good one to listen to um something more recent um well they used to be called Viet Cong but they're called Preoccupations now um is a bit more rocky uh, like Crystal Stilts, they were around for a while. Um, I remember that band. Yeah, and that's kind of, that's a bit more surfer rocky, but it's got that same like deep Ian Curtis singing voice. Um, 
but that's yeah. So that's maybe that's all the connection is really for that. Um, yeah, we haven't even to... mentioned New Order. Yeah, New Order. I mean, again, yes, but New Order kind of went on and did their own. You know, had their own sound really, and yeah. I don't think it ever. You know, ever really emulated Joy Division? It was it was more their own thing, which is which was the right thing to do. I mean, that's the thing that, that again, listening to a Peter Hook thing, he goes like, "If you'd have asked me walking out that Sex Pistols gig um, that I wasn't going to be in just one but two bands that would change the world, I would have told you to fuck <laughs> off." You know, yeah, forget about that because I always think about Joy yeah. Division, but. Because, you know, just growing up, it's like New Order were just kind of, you know, a band that were about, that had like a, you know, few hit tracks, not thinking the fact that, you know, they were much bigger than Joy Division ever were. They're yeah. Huge. We, we probably came in and got the kind of like early to mid-90s Joy Division, uh, New Order. Yeah. Uh, um, All that earlier stuff, I think their first stuff that came out after Joy Division, it's probably got a bit more... Um, you know, merit. Mm-hmm. Not that the later, like, really super commercial chart stuff isn't isn't good and doesn't have merit. Um, but maybe I think some of the earlier stuff is a bit closer to the Joy Division sound, and especially I thought that track "Disorder" hinted at a little bit of what they might become. Yeah, um, but yeah, I can't really think of anything else to watch uh, to watch to listen to. Um, I just think, you know, you can kind of look into like the whole post-punk scene. I'm sure you'll find, you know, a lot of, a lot of great stuff there. But um, yeah, um, that's it. I'd be interested in what everyone else thinks about it. And, you know, if they um, do think it's one of the best albums ever. I should say my little daughter, um, he's, uh, no, I won't say my eldest, has a Joy Division Unknown Pleasures um, jumper. <laughs> that she loves and that everyone wherever she goes all the other kids are like looking at it go like trying to like trace it with their fingers and stuff like that <laughs> um yeah and i'm that like and what's great is that it's not like black and white it's like uh like pinky purple kind of thing it's quite colorful actually um yeah it's quite interesting so that's just how much i love this album <laughs> that make my daughter go around wearing <laughs> wearing, it, <laughs> wearing it on a jumper it shows um, how, uh, yeah, like it's like hardwired into the brain of children to respond to that design. Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, We've not discussed the outtakes from the sessions. Go on. Um, so I'm literally just reading this off of the internet. So these songs' titles mean nothing to me, but they might mean something to you. Right. Also recorded during the sessions at the Strawberry Studios were the tracks Auto Suggestion. Right. And From Safety to Wear. Yeah, quite a famous one. As well as Exercise One. Mm-hmm. The Only Mistake. Mm-hmm. Walked in Line. Quite a lot, actually. And The Kill. Well, I know that... Um, vaguely remember something about the fact that whilst... I knew they did record some other stuff whilst they were there... Um, and I believe that Peter Hook and um, the drummer, um, Stephen, Stephen Morris, Morris um, they, they were like, oh, we've got some like time. Um, can you just come up with some, some more songs? And I believe like um, From Safety to Wear uh, was one of those that they just wrote on the spot. 
Oh, cool. Um, which is weird. So I think I think it's only like two or three of them that they kind of came up with on the spot, and the rest tracks that were just kind of around. And obviously, some of that stuff came up a bit later. Um, kind of shows that when you're that age, that that all you need is to be put in a room, have a bit of inspiration, and something you can come up with a, a pretty cool song. Um, yeah. So two of those songs came out at came out at that time, October 1979 on a compilation called Earcom 2. Okay. Don't know this. Um, on the record label Fast Product um, with some tracks by Thursdays and Baskzaks. Right. Baskzaks. So, um, so that's where they came out. But then the other songs, so that was auto-suggestion and from Safety Swear... These other songs, Exercise One, The Only Mistake, Walks In Line and The Kill, presumably that was stuff where they went back, I suppose, after Ian Curtis died and wanted to cobble together another release. Mm. Looks like they went back into the vaults and went, oh, what, what we got? outtakes and things have we got that we can make a compilation from? I'm assuming. That is Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures. So, guys, thanks for um, listening. And, yeah, I don't know what um, people think of this album. And uh, I know most of our listeners are from uh, the United States of America and whether people even listen to Joy Division over there. I'm sure they do. But if they're you know that deeply aware of um, more than just the hits, if they're aware that this, is, this album even exists, really... Um, so yeah, get in touch with us, newwinterpodcast at gmail.com, Instagram, newwinter, Twitter, newwinter, et cetera, et cetera. Again, you can support the show by going to patreon.com slash newwinter, two W's in the middle. So have a listen to us there. Um, and the, there's been a couple of episodes put up there talking about the new Star Wars series, The Mandalorian. So check that out. If you like a bit of Star Wars, Dan, where can people find you? I'm using the handle Dreadful Discs, so you can find me on Instagram at Dreadful Discs and operating now on YouTube using that same name, discussing specifically pieces of vinyl and other outmoded formats of music. What um, has been some of your latest uh, videos up on there? Um, did a discussion on some King Gizzard and the Elizard Wizard stuff. Um, what else have I done? Some like more recent kind of like noise rock band called Hepatitis, and also some like obscure seventies world music fusion and funk. Um, but I've got some Nirvana stuff planned, some Dave Bowie stuff, and um, well, anything and, and all sorts really. And maybe tie in some of it with um, the content you're doing here on a new winter. Yeah. Well, good. There'll be plenty more content coming up if my voice can take it. Um, <laughs> slowly running, <laughs> slowly running out of power. Um, yeah, thanks everyone for listening, and go listen to some unknown pleasures because now you know a bit more about it. So now it's more of a known pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. Uh, perfect. Bye. <laughs> Culture.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.